0: Describing verbally the colors and the sounds and the sights that you see on a coral reef, it does not do justice. You can only really experience the splendor if you are there yourself.
1: Um, this is Larry Susskind. Um, I'm a faculty member at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT and uh, your host for these uh, webinars, uh, all based on the uh, environment series, environment and sustainability series published by Anthem Press. And I have the great fortune today to be talking to a friend and colleague, Kelly Heber Dunning, uh, who's assistant professor at Auburn School of Forestry and Wildlife uh, in the United States. And at that university, she had something called the Conservation Governance Lab, where she works with the students and faculty colleagues on environmental policy globally and public policy questions like coastal ecosystem preservation and wildlife preservation and forest management and estuary management and particularly coral reefs. And it is coral reefs that is the subject of her book that we're going to talk about today. And her book is called Managing Coral Reefs. It has a long subtitle, which we'll get into a little bit at a time, I think. Um, But the book is prescriptive as well as analytic. It focuses on one part of the world with regard to managing coral reefs, but it has relevance to coral reef management all over the world, proven by the fact uh, that uh, Kelly is part of efforts at managing coral reefs in many locations. So um, I'm going to start by asking Kelly um, to tell us uh, the story, really, of how she came to write this book, and then ask her to say just a little bit about the, what she sees as the main ideas or takeaways uh, that someone who reads the book um, could take with them, and then we'll probe more deeply. So Kelly, welcome.
0: Thank you, Larry. Uh, Really happy to be here. Really grateful for you having me on. Um, I guess I'll get started. So the reason that that I wrote this book, I grew up in South Florida. And as most people who grow up in South Florida have the honor and privilege of doing, I grew up most weekends snorkeling on the coral reefs down there and you know, describing verbally the colors and the sounds and the sights that you see on a coral reef, it does not know justice. You can only really experience the splendor if you are there yourself. Um, but I vividly remember one time when I was on a really kind of famous coral reef down in Key Largo called Molasses Reef, seeing a bright, almost neon yellow stand of a type of coral that's shaped like the antler of an elk. And it's called elkhorn coral. And I remember looking at this coral and just swimming around and around and just being so mesmerized by this beautiful bright yellow sand of elkhorn coral. Now as I got older and I was in college and I could you know take weekends when I was at the University of Florida and drive down and do some more snorkeling and at this point diving, I know I started to notice that I couldn't really see any elkhorn. That was one of the foundational moments in my childhood and Where's all the elkhorn? I don't see any of it. And I don't see this other type of coral either, this faster growing, smaller coral that looks like a different type of antler called staghorn, or they look like a bunch of little human fingers. So I wasn't seeing any elkhorn. I wasn't seeing any staghorn. Where was all this coral that I saw growing up? So I started to do a little bit of reading in some of the classes that I was taking at the University of Florida, where actually some of the Um, the people who first started to notice these shifts, they're called phase shifts on a coral reef, where you can have hard corals, like the ones I saw as a child, sort of transition over to, um, because of environmental destruction, they transition over to less desirable and, quite frankly, less beautiful forms of what they once were, mostly due to human impact, but also due to natural impact. Things like hurricanes can do a lot of coral breaking and stuff like that. But that's all to say, when I saw this with my own eyes, I wanted to kind of poke into this a little bit and figure out, are coral reefs changing the way that I think they are? If they are, what are we doing that's causing that? And how can we change the things that we're doing to kind of fix that? So I ended up um, enrolling at MIT. I got the honor and privilege to study under Larry. Um, at the time, we were really kind of focusing in on Southeast Asia because of connections we were developing to the Malaysian government through some really rewarding um, scholarly exchanges with some people who were coming out of Malaysia and other parts of the world. So I started to look into Southeast Asian coral reefs, which are mega diverse ecosystems. Um, as someone who grew up, you know, diving and snorkeling in Florida. Southeast Asian coral reefs have 10 times the amount of coral and fish species that we have. And that's not to say that they're better. I mean, your home reef is always your home reef, but it's still just a a part of the world that's absolutely worth doing everything we can to conserve because of how special it is. So. In the lead up to writing this book, um, I took a couple of fieldwork trips out there. I did some underwater surveys. I got to swim along the reef ridgeline and really start to actually um, do some ecological science in terms of figuring out how healthy the reef was. But more importantly, or maybe equally importantly, but to me, more importantly, I also wanted to talk to the communities who depend a lot on these reefs. So just like where I grew up in South Florida, Southeast Asian communities in the places where I was working in Indonesia and Malaysia, they really depend on these coral reefs to protect them from uh, major tropical storms down there. They're called typhoons, but here we call them hurricanes. They depend on reefs to draw a lot of visitors like me. So tourists come there and they spend a lot of money to stay in hotels and get on dive boats. Um, they also view reefs as their own national heritage, just like we do. Our, um, our major reef in the United States, off the coast of Florida, that's a, nat- a natural heritage site that belongs to all of us. It belongs to future generations, and it's no different in Southeast Asia. So um, having spent some time on the reefs of Malaysia um, and seeing how they look after their reefs there, I wanted to compare it to another country in this mega-diverse region. So, Um, I was learning Malay at the time, um, so I figured, why not work in another country that speaks Bahasa? So I set up another field site in Indonesia, and I started to compare the way that these places kind of manage and look after their coral reefs. And what I found was in Indonesia, the central government has entrusted local villages and local communities with almost... um, complete control over what happens to their reefs, whether that's managing who gets to fish the waters, who gets to take or remove wildlife and animals off those reefs, to issues of coastal planning, how many hotels are allowed to be built along the uh, the sandy beaches every year. And this is completely different from what they do in Malaysia, where much like here in the United States, the federal government is in charge of everything. So, federal marine parks officers are tasked with the same exact things that regular, local, everyday folks are tasked with in the Indonesian setting. So basically I was looking at um, bottom-up or community-based or village-based coral reef management versus top-down or this sort of government-led, bureaucratic um, coral reef management. And both my ecology and the conversations that I had with people who lived around these coral reefs and really depended on them showed that when you trust local, everyday people, communities, villages, you see immensely better outcomes for the people who depend on those reefs and for the coral reefs themselves. Um, I can't emphasize enough how surprising this was to me because the communities that I was um, speaking to people in you know, these are people who just 20 years ago were using dynamite to do fishing off the coasts so that they could harvest these larger types of tuna and grouper through the use of destructed fish, destruct, destructive fishing methods. And in the 20 years since then, had completely converted to this sustainable ecotourism model, um, which incentivized them to really act as strict and careful stewards of the coral reefs that they depend on so going from people who fish with dynamite to people who work together voluntarily collaboratively in a participatory way to looking after these reefs and i have to emphasize there's not a lot of wealth in this area people have very limited incomes most of the same people who were looking after these reefs in these Indonesian villages, their day job was either working as hotel staff or working as offshore fishermen in the tuna fishery. So despite having not a whole lot of money, they spent their money, their minds, their time looking after these coral reefs because they knew that this work now would preserve the reefs for future generations. Now, I contrasted that with the top-down federally run management in Malaysia. And, you know, if you've ever spent any time in a big government office, we see it all the time in the United States with the issues with the VA hospital system. There's so many examples of this type of thing. I'm working right now on the issues with FEMA-led hurricane aid delivery, but Oftentimes when services such as, you know, looking after coral reefs are trickling down from on high from these really big bureaucracies, often in vastly far away cities, there are implementation issues where this work just doesn't get done. And this was what I found in the Malaysian coral reefs. And unfortunately, the same villages and communities who had done so much to work together in the Indonesian context were completely and deliberately excluded from any type of management power in the Malaysian setting, which I believe led to worse outcomes where people actually didn't care about the reef and would do things like throw their litter onto the reef from the boat. So I guess to sum that all up, This book tells two really dramatically different stories. One of when people with very little um, pool their time, effort, know-how, knowledge to really act as stewards of a system on which their community really strongly depends. And then on the other hand, you have a system where this top-down bureaucratic frame of government framework of government that doesn't really allow common everyday people to participate has really kind of failed and really needs to do a better job to bring people in, or else the coral reefs of Malaysia, which are actively becoming much more popular on the tourist circuit, are just going to be um, basically destroyed in the process. So I hope that that does a good job of wrapping up the book there. Um, That's really all I had on summarizing it.
1: No, that's great, Kelly. And now, when I say the full title of the book, anyone, <laughs> li- anyone listening will understand, right? Managing Coral Reefs, colon, <laughs> an ecological and institutional analysis of ecosystem services in Southeast Asia. And as part of our Anthem um, Ecosystem Services and Restoration series, We're interested not just in the ecological questions, but in these institutional questions that you are raising. Um, Another sort of storyline winding through the book, uh, and uh, it's not contradictory to what you've been saying, but it's just another way of looking at the distinction between Malaysia and Indonesia, has to do with something called the International Convention on Biological Diversity. And maybe you could talk a little bit about the CBD and why that found its way into your discussion. You were writing about two countries. That's fine. Uh, But you were also addressing uh, a question that's global in nature and in some ways contained within the story of the CBD. So could you tell us for people that don't know what about the CBD and and how it found its way into your analysis,
0: of course. Um, and actually, I'm working on I'm I've returned to the data that I've used in this book, um, and I'm working on a little bit of analysis at the moment, sort of pushing this idea of um, the implementation of the International Convention on Biological Diversity. So that'll be coming out eventually, but it's it's something that's really fresh in my mind. Um, so the Convention on Biological Diversity, the CBD, this is sort of a global voluntary framework agreement, where um, somewhere around 160 countries all over the world signed on to it. And there's all of these different components to the agreement. But basically, the gist of it is that Countries are going to make strategic action plans for the conservation of both terrestrial and coastal ecosystems. Coral reefs pop up again and again and again and again in this thing just because they're so unique and they are so precious in terms of just the sheer number of species of plants and um, animals that inhabit these ecosystems. So whenever countries committed to these things, the important thing there is the commitments were voluntary. They voluntarily decided to agree to develop these plans. Um, whoever signed them, the executive or the legislature, whoever's responsible for ultimately signing onto a treaty like this, went back to a ministry. And this ministry, in the Malaysian case, say the, the Marine Parks Ministry, was responsible for drafting the legislation on how Malaysians were going to set up what's called a marine protected area. So everything that you see happening on the ground in terms of implementing these protected areas for really precious marine ecosystems ties back to these global agreements for For biodiversity protection. Now, something really interesting, you know, if you read the news and you read uh, what's happening with the current administration and the incoming administration with climate change, for example, you often hear skeptics say things along the lines of, well, it doesn't matter that we're leaving the Paris Accords because they're voluntary. I would completely contest that argument and say, well, look at what we've done with global biodiversity conservation. You have almost every single member state of the CBD enacting marine protected areas for their coral reefs, for their terrestrial systems like rainforests. The progress has been huge. Now, I talked about Malaysia, but Indonesia went about it completely differently. And often the ways that countries tend to implement these types of plans for their biodiversity is really tied to the politics of what's going on in that country. So um, Indonesia in 1997, 1998, they overthrew their longtime dictator at the time. And all power was really sort of strongly concentrated in Jakarta at that particular moment. Well, after he was overthrown, um, basically power immediately was devolved from the central government to the local islands. So um, the, the island of Bali, the province of Bali, the local governments within Bali, almost overnight had complete control over the way that a lot of terms of this treaty were to be implemented on the ground. So it's actually village... City, county, provincial governments, local governments that work together to, um, with the help of federal actors and ministries, plan and implement and enforce these protected areas, which is in direct contrast to the way that Malaysia has implemented their version of the CBD, which comes straight out of the federal ministries. So it's all really an interesting combination of, um, you know, the unique political goings on in that country, um, the historic trajectories of that country. um, And no one country's implementation of the CBD looks the same. Um, If I had unlimited time and unlimited money, you could include every single country that has coral reefs in a follow-up book to this book and come up with something completely new and different every time. And that's one of the benefits of a voluntary agreement. You know, people roll their eyes at them and they say they're so ineffective. Well, I would make the argument that they leave space for countries to adapt to their own political context in a way that really works for them.
1: Um, thank you for the insight into those connections intergovernmentally, federal, state, local, and how they all uh, interact Um but, but I want to push just a bit on your concluding comment. Uh, when you teach about environmental planning or natural resource management, um, and you're talking to students who are not expert on the subject, and you're trying to bring them into a deeper understanding of what it's going to take. And I liked your example, your connection to climate change. But in a general way, I'm asking you a question about the theory of natural resource management. How is it, do you think, that in, for example, the Indonesian case, that this decentralized approach to managing a scarce resource actually worked, right? Some of the cases that you discovered locally of uh, dive companies, in not following all the rules and letting do, uh, visiting divers go down onto the reef in a way that they probably shouldn't have been allowed to. And that they didn't, in all the private actors in the decentralized system, uh, what gets them to comply? What gets them to do what they're supposed to do? Whereas in the Malaysian top-down system, the way compliance with the rules was uh, presumed to be enforced was through a kind of uh, marine police force of federal folks who were going to watch over and make sure all these independent actors did what they were told to how in a decentralized system can you get enforcement of rules what do you what do you teach about that
0: oh, so you know i could I could talk for 10 hours about this, <laughs> but I won't.
1: We, so, we have in the past.
0: <laughs> so um, there's a couple parts to this question, and I'm kind of going to work through them. And I'm going to give you, you know, now that we have the main storyline of the book kind of communicated to the listeners, I'm going to get into a little bit of the ways that what I found, because you never have every example in a case type site, follow the narrative that you're pushing, right? So in my own case site, in this beautiful shining example of local village led community based coral reef management that I just kind of lift up and I exult. If you really look close and you want to spend a lot of time and you really want to get it right, you have to be really honest about the pathologies that are going on there as well. One of those is exactly like you mentioned. Unfortunately, a lot of the people who end up actually doing enforcement at the end of the day are private actors. Okay. So dive companies, privately owned businesses, hotel owners that sort of police the, bi- the, the, the beachfront of the resort that they own, and so on and so forth. So effectively, somebody could come at me and say, so what you're saying is that we should privatize all the land and access points to an ecosystem in order to get people to actually comply with the outcome. Now, that would be a really hard thing for me to grapple with, because idealistically, I could never agree to that. But I will say that it did work on the ground. What I would say instead is, you know, this is kind of one of the flaws in this system is that just because it worked in this situation doesn't mean it could work everywhere. So in some of my work in the Congo, for example, I saw this go too far where you had access to really iconic uh, great ape species and areas of the rainforest governed exclusively by private actors who were not acting as good stewards of the environment and who were instead um, building all this infrastructure that was really degrading the forest ecosystem instead. And in theory, the people who are doing this type of enforcement in the community-based cases that I talk about in Indonesia, they could have decided to do the wrong thing instead of the right thing. It just so happened that they were acting as good stewards for now, what if their incentive structure changes in five years? And instead of building, you know, sustainably along the coastline and managing access in a really sustainable way, something that they told me, for example, was that some groups prefer to um, touch and feed wildlife, for example. So typically tourists who come from parts of the world who have lower levels of education prefer to touch and feed wildlife. So they were expanding wildlife feeding tours to um, sort of appeal to the, these types of visitors. Now, is that a sustainable way to manage a reef? No, you should never engage in supplemental feeding of a, of a reef fish population. It, it's, it has really bad effects on the ecosystem and, and you just shouldn't do that t- type of thing. You should teach people that you don't want to interact with wildlife in that way. You want to give them space, right? However, because this was kind of what the market was asking for and private sector actors had so much power to actually enforce, Um, there, there was a tension kind of coming up here where they were doing a great job of it, but if the incentive structure would change even a little bit, some of the things that I was kind of hailing in my book as being really great for the coral reef may in fact change in the long run. So I guess that's all to say These types of enforcers, and I want to talk a little bit about some some good type of enforcement in the community-based sites. So you actually had these kind of religious officials in the Hindu temple called Pechelan, and they, in some of these villages, made Pechelan laut, or sea police. Um, So in the Hindu temple, the Pechelan are like the ushers in church. They kind of bring people in, they make sure that the ceremony goes or the mass goes all as planned, and they kind of navigate, you know, the flow of things that happen in the course of a religious service. The Pechelan Laut, or the, the sea police, the sea religious figures are the same thing. They uh, kind of patrol the reef on certain days of the week. They have an office where they uh, make sure that nothing's going on. Some A boat was in the area that was known to be doing some destructive fishing using cyanide, and the Pechelan Laut got in their boat and went out and told them to go away, basically, Um, So that's all to say there are some really amazing and quite lovely things going on in terms of self-organized enforcement where these Petulon Louds and other sort of culturally relevant groups kind of emerge on their own. Nobody's telling them to do it. Nobody's funding them to do it. They're emerging. They're making these social arrangements completely on their own without any outside support. Now, like I said, the bad part about this all is A lot of these actors who also act as enforcers are private businesses. And when the winds blow in a different direction and certain unsustainable behaviors can happen on the reef, the future may hold um, an increase in these types of activities like feeding and touching wildlife on the reef. So that's a definite flaw of this form of management that I've otherwise sort of held up. And what a solution is there? It's not very hard to get to a feasible solution in this. And what my solution was, and I sort of mentioned this at the end of the book, is we can't leave villages and communities, local people who have full-time jobs and do this kind of on the side just because of their moral obligations. We can't leave them out to dry, okay? You know, global aid groups, civil society, NGOs, The federal government of indonesia needs to do more to support these purely voluntary actions that communities are doing out of the goodness of their hearts so that they can kind of address some of these what are in effect market failures right this market failure is leading people to touch and feed wildlife on the reef if they do some supplemental education and maybe some supplemental um you know payments or things like that to these groups to say hey If we get word, you know, that you're not feeding any wildlife on your reef for the next year, and we're going to come out and check from time to time, we'll make up for that extra money that you're getting from these certain groups that you're, you know, you're, you're bringing out to feed and touch wildlife on the reef. So not purely leaving local communities out on their own to figure it out on their own, having government play a role and support them and work with them. um, I think that that's, you know, a, a good solution there. Now, on the other hand, what gets people to comply in the top-down system? Why aren't there people out there fishing on the reef, or why are there? Well, the answer is there are, and people are not complying. And even though the effective Marine officer police have this really you know, scary-looking boat, it's painted all black, it has these scary-looking sirens on the top, you can hear it coming from a mile away, you do not want this boat chasing you when you're out on the reef doing bad things— even though this exists, and there's a more formalized version of the Petulon Laut that's sort of more culturally universal almost, just like the reef cops, right? Um, the unfortunate reality of the situation is there is not a really big incentive for them to get out there and actually enforce like they're supposed to. I remember, you know, very starkly taking an interview where somebody jokingly said, I can get these guys to come to me if I have a sandwich to give them, but I can't give them to come to me and give me help if I need to pull a giant net off the reef or have an illegal fishing boat removed from the reef. So, you know, to get back to the question, what gets, what, what ensures compliance in these different cases? Um, you know, just because there is a more formalized force, police force, engaging in compliance... Because there's nobody looking over their shoulder and there's not a really big system of accountability because the bureaucracy that sort of runs these marine protected areas in Malaysia is very far off, you don't really see compliance. You get more sort of gestures of compliance or shadows of what compliance could be. Now, I have a solution for that one as well, and you can sort of see it in similarly managed federal marine parks like the one that we see in the Florida Keys. Again. you know, just like you need to bring government a little bit more into the community-based marine protected areas in Malay or in Indonesia, the opposite is true in Malaysia. In the 1990s, when they were shifting, um, when they were first creating these marine protected areas, they completely excluded and deliberately kicked out the communities who live right next to these reefs from having any sort of role in these protected areas. A lot of the businesses for diving and boating are owned by people who aren't even from the area. So the opposite is true um, for how to address this issue with compliance in the top-down setting. You need to bring in the local communities to have some of these self-organized things, maybe with a religious streak to them like we saw with the petulon Laut, but Primarily shaped by themselves so that people are interested in joining them, maybe youth groups, maybe uh, girls groups to increase women's participation in these types of things. But basically two different solutions for the same problem, which isn't perfect in either site.
1: Thank you, Kelly. This is why I I love your book so much. (laughs) and, And the way you approach this is uh, not true in lots of books that come out on environmental policy, environmental planning, sustainability. Th- these are these are books that are designed to make an argument and the argument disavows anything that's not completely consistent with this true believer's point of view. A lot of environmental books have that quality. Uh, what we've tried to do in the in the anthem, Uh, Environment and Sustainability Initiative in the series that we have is to say, start with something real. (laughs) Tell us what actually happened. Uh, Yes, we want your analysis. Yes, we want your conclusions. But keep it real. Tell us when the idea that you thought this was going to tell us about actually didn't come to be. And so thank you for describing in both instances why there's not an ideal type approach to managing natural resources that's always just this or always just that. That's, in my view, what we desperately need to be moving toward in terms of scholarship and teaching about environment and sustainability. Yeah, fine. We're glad you believe in these ideas. Now let's talk about what it's going to take to make things work. Oh, context matters. What works in one place doesn't work in another. What works in one time in that context doesn't work at another time. Let's talk about how to understand the ways in which good ideas need to be adapted and modified Uh, to really produce results. And that's what your book talks about. It talks about the results, not just the uh, lovely qualities of a certain set of ideas. Uh, We're almost um, out of time, hard to believe, Um, but I want to ask you, uh, just say a little bit, about your efforts to work on uh, preserving coral worldwide at the present time. I know you are involved in some other efforts not in Southeast Asia, and uh, not in Florida at the present time. So could you briefly just say a little bit about the action research in which you're involved?
0: <laughs> so again, this is another thing that I could just go on and on and on about because, and you know, ask anyone who spends a lot of time with me, it's it's I, I can't stop talking about it. So um, last year, I was setting up a field site down in the Cayman Islands. Before coronavirus kicked off, I had plans to set up um, very, very similar research that I did in this book to ba- basically make a sequel to Managing Coral Reefs, Managing Coral Reefs Part 2, um, but set in the Caribbean. Um, and I wanted to include uh, low-income countries, middle-income countries, high-income countries, and just basically kind of flesh out the analysis better with what happens when rich folks are doing this? What happens when really poor folks are doing this? What happens in the middle? Um, how Maybe these things have no bearing on it at all. I don't know, but let's compare and let's find out. So I was in the Cayman Islands right before coronavirus stuff started to really kick off. And I found out that there was a government led initiative to destroy what is the most iconic coral reef, probably in the entire Caribbean, to make these man made cruising piers, they're called cruise berths, B-E-R-T-H, for these new generation of superliner. it's like this, this You know, it's twice as big as the previous generation of cruise ships, but they need these piers in order to dock in port. Now, prior to that in the Cayman Islands, everybody who came on a cruise to the Caymans would have something called tendering, where the cruise ships parked offshore... Um, They were tied up to a mooring point and they were brought in on these tenders, these little boats all run by um, historic Caymanian businesses that are a big part of the uh, cultural fabric there. So the amount of reefs roughly that was going to be taken out by these cruising berths was 10 football fields worth of coral reefs. In my book, if you take out 10 feet of coral reefs, that's a massive loss because less than 1% of the ocean floor has coral reefs in it. And like I said before, these are global heritage sites. They're so special and they're so threatened. And with a changing climate, it's really hard to find areas with any living hard coral on them these days in the Caribbean region and in Florida where I grew up. So they're trying to tear out at least 10 football fields of coral reefs using a dredge to build these piers for a private company to come and bring people who aren't from there so it's local people who are going to bear the burden of this type of development. Furthermore, it's not just any reef. It's not any reef. If you've ever taken a paddy diving class, an SSI diving class, any of those big companies that do diving, all of the pictures in the books from people diving are from a reef in Cheeseburger Reef right in Georgetown Harbor in the Cayman Islands. This is where the idea of recreational diving was invented. The whole culture around diving, all of the images that we learn how to do diving, um, these were taken from this reef that would have been within the dredge footprint of this cruise berthing facility. Now I really quickly met the local Caymanian people who had self-organized into a democratic referendum to um basically tell the government we don't want these cruising berths. So you had government actors. This is a this is a Westminster style system where they have um you know a cabinet that's similar to the UK Prime Minister. There's still a UK overseas territory. So um you had the premier, um Adam McLaughlin, and you had his cabinet, uh Moses Kirkconnell. And there's a lot of conflict of interest going on there. And you know, I don't want to harp too badly on individuals, I don't want to put anyone on blast. But you know the same people who were pushing really, really hard for these cruising berths were the same people who owned all of the duty-free shops that lined the shoreline right whenever people would come in. Um, there was no joint fact finding. There was very little uh, geotechnical research on what this was going to do to the beaches. Because if you remember from the beginning of the talk, I mentioned that coral reefs are a huge uh, buffering protective service for the communities that live near them. Um, There are a lot of low-income and migrant populations that live in these areas because these are tourist-centric areas. What's going to happen to low-income people who lose their main buffering protection from storm surge, from hurricanes? Nobody knows. Then um, you have just this really bad science being circulated by the government saying that for every every hectare of reef that they lose, they're going to put in, they're going to replant 10 times that. So a 10 to one mitigation plan. Now in a single hectare of coral, you have anywhere between a half million and a million corals. So the scale that they're promising without some type of technology that just doesn't exist today, it's just impossible. There's no way to do even one-to-one mitigation, let alone 10 to one mitigation. And the worst part about this all is the Cayman Islands have really strong protections in place for coral reef protections and sort of led the way in the Caribbean for protecting their coral reefs. Okay. So what does it say if these big cruise companies, these multinational companies are able to come in, promise these technological fixes that don't exist Amidst huge levels of uncertainty for Cayman Islanders, there aren't even really accurate projections on how much more money they would earn if they would install these birthing piers. There's been one business case done. It's a well-done business case, but it doesn't take into account who is bearing the impacts and who's going to be left holding the bag if the dredge footprint is, is say, 10 times larger than they predicted to be. So um, I have been working really closely with all the folks who organize this referendum, Um, We submitted a uh, it was basically a brief that it basically sued the government of the Cayman Islands, working with the National Trust to stop this from happening. Um, We compiled a lot of scientific research that said that there is no proof that this type of mitigation they're promising could happen. Um, The the referendum. Project, it was delayed by the premiere um, until after Christmas and then ultimately tabled indefinitely because of coronavirus. So, um, this organizing by Caymanian led civil society, especially um, just like a self organized group um, called Cruise Referendum Cayman. Um, Just local people who had day jobs volunteering their time to get out the vote and to make sure that people knew. And even the way that the referendum on the cruise birthing was set up was flawed. Um, In effect, if you didn't show up on the day of the referendum, your vote was counted as a yes. Talk about stacking the results in favor of the cruise industry. Um, A lot of people would not have been there because the referendum was held right next to Christmas, so they're home in other parts of the Caribbean. Their home in the UK. So I think what makes this case so surprising is that it's happening in a really wealthy country in the Caribbean, but also the staying power that civil society has to say, well, no, we don't want this. We're going to organize and really effectively put an end to this. Um, the, we do not want this type of thing in our country. You cannot sort of shove this through with the shady referenda um, with a lack of science, with a lack of assessment, with a lack of consensus around this thing. Um, however, what's going to happen if this happens in a place like Haiti that had just had their civil society and these types of gr- groups decimated by repeated natural hazards and poverty and stuff like that? What happens in a place where there's much weak weaker capacity to do this type of thing? Well, um, the cruise berths they get built, and they are being built in the Bahamas. Um, similar mega projects even happened in the city of Miami. So um, this is a, a developing thing, and it's basically, um, you know, private companies increasingly have more and more power to just sidestep the laws and policies that we have in place to take care of coral reefs. So um, in the future, the next uh, couple projects, couple things that we're going to be writing are exactly on this and how other parts of the world can kind of mimic the success of the Cayman Islands and make sure that this doesn't happen anywhere else because we need to really look after what we have, especially with the changing climate. Um, Reefs have been irreversibly changed in the Anthropocene and we need to really closely guard what we have.
1: Well, I hope, Kelly, that we will uh, consider uh, publishing the next book on the Caribbean coral reefs uh, in the Anthem series, we would I got
0: welcome to. I've we got would,
1: to. <laughs> we would. We would welcome it. Um, it's been terrific to catch up to hear your um, about your current work and to uh, have you share explanations for the earlier work that led to the wonderful managing coral reefs book. Um, also, I want to thank you for being a reviewer. Uh, Anthem publishes the Anthem Enviro Experts Review every quarter, in which we take books that uh, people have done recently, not just Anthem books, uh, about uh, environment and sustainability. And Kelly's one of the reviewers. We're trying to build a larger and larger community of folks willing to give feedback and comments on others' work and have their own books reviewed. So, if someone listening isn't familiar with the Anthem's Enviro Experts Review, uh, we hope you will check that out and you can keep up on uh, new publications in the environment and sustainability area. Uh, Kelly, thank you so much. Uh, it's uh, important uh, that people understand this kind of uh, research. Uh, too many researchers write in ways that people who are not committed only to doing scholarship on environment, uh, read it and understand it. That's not the case with your work. Anybody can access uh, your work and understand as you. they can see from the way you tell the stories uh, out loud with us. So well, I really
0: appreciate it. Thanks, Larry.
1: Thanks so much. Um, and uh, I hope uh, those listening Uh, We'll look at the other uh, recordings that exist on iTunes uh, in this series of uh, conversations with uh, Anthem authors. Uh, Goodbye for now. We hope uh, you'll check in with us again in the future.